Welcome to Goodfellow Podcast. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Nikki Perkins about updates and what's new in sexual health. Nikki is a specialist in sexual health medicine, practicing publicly at Auckland District Health Board and privately at Omnicare Women's Health Clinic in Remuera. Nikki is actively involved in teaching and research. She is interested in chronic genital and sexual pain, vulvovaginal disease, and genital dermatology. Nikki practices from a whole-body perspective and has completed postgraduate training in mind-body medicine. Welcome, Nikki. Thanks. So today we're updating our listeners on sexual health medicine. Can you tell us what's happening here, Nikki, and what are the current trends? Things are interesting in New Zealand at the moment from the perspective of sexual health medicine. In particular, I would start off with comments about syphilis. I know that you have some detailed podcasts, which I think would be really useful for your listeners. But briefly, we do have a syphilis outbreak in New Zealand, which has been going on for several years now. The data is incomplete because our reporting systems are not currently uh, fantastic, but they have been updated and we look forward to getting some some better data as we go forward. But uh, up till now, there's been certainly enhanced surveillance going on from sexual health services around the country uh, and family planning regarding infectious syphilis. Since 2017, there have been about 325 cases of infectious syphilis reported through the Sexual Health Services and Family Planning. That may not sound like a large number of cases, but when I was training as a sexual health physician 20 years ago, I didn't see a single case in five years of training. So although the numbers technically are relatively small, the increase has been absolutely massive. It's gone from an infection which was always imported from another country to an infection which now is spreading within New Zealand and being passed from one New Zealander to another. This outbreak has been primarily driven by men who have sex with men who are acquiring their infection in New Zealand. However, in recent years, there's been quite a large increase in the heterosexual cases and we are now seeing quite a number of heterosexual men and women with syphilis of all ages. Uh, In particular, this is relevant from the perspective of antenatal testing and pregnant women. Unfortunately, we are seeing congenital cases appearing now. And in the last two years, there have been about eight cases and four stillbirths from syphilis, which in a first world country is completely unacceptable. So we really need to get on top of this outbreak as soon as we can. And, you know, there are processes in place to try and help us with that, but effectively it means testing, 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 and case finding, because people often don't present with symptoms, they're going to have their condition detected on a blood test. Uh, And we're struggling at the moment with being able to get out there and test the people who are specifically at risk. In terms of gonorrhea, there is an increase in gonorrhea. This is driven by, mainly by diagnoses in males in large urban areas and the increased rates are across all ethnic groups for males. In females, the increased rates are most notable for Maori, Pacific peoples and Middle Eastern, Latin American and African ethnic groups. For males, there are recent increases in the 20 to 39 age group and for females in the 20 to 35 age group. And there's an increase in the number of positive tests where the site of infection is anorectal or throat, especially for males. So 
A lot of this increase is actually again in the men of sex with men uh, population and this is mainly in the urban centres and rural centres for example in uh, the Gisborne area this is actually a heterosexual issue. In terms of HIV there has been an overall increase in numbers of new infections over the last few years which peaked in 2016 and dropped again in 2017 to 197 new infections. The 2018 data is not out yet. HIV is still largely uh, in the MSM population rather than heterosexual transmission and the majority of these people are acquiring their infection in New Zealand. We anticipate this to be impacted in a positive way quite seriously by the introduction of PrEP which we'll talk about a little bit later and that happened in March 2018. In terms of other STIs, Basically, genital warts, of course, are on the down as we expected and hoped for with the introduction of the Gardasil vaccine. We now, of course, have Gardasil 9. And the issue for New Zealand, as always, I think, is coverage. I'm certainly still meeting a number of young women who were not vaccinated for various reasons, primarily because of their mothers having concerns about adverse effects of the vaccine, sometimes for religious reasons. But certainly, even though our coverage is not excellent, we are seeing a dramatic reduction in the presentation of young women with genital warts to sexual health services. Uh, in terms of chlamydia and genital herpes, these remain relatively stable. I should mention at this point mycoplasma genitalium. We do not connect, collect data on this organism as yet, but in recent years after the development of a PCR test for this organism, it is now becoming a little bit more mainstream in terms of our talk about sexually transmitted infections. It is an interesting organism that was confirmed to be a sexually transmitted agent many, many years ago, but because culturing it was so difficult, uh, we really didn't have a lot of information about it until recent years. In New Zealand, there's a lot of regional variation about from sexual health services about who they test and how they manage this. In the Auckland region, we test men who are having recurrent NSU for this organism because it's strongly implicated in men who fail their initial treatment for NSU. So we test them, we test contacts of patients who are known to have mycoplasma genitalium, and we also test women who are failing pelvic inflammatory disease treatment. We don't do routine screening as yet, and the reason for this is it's not clear how important asymptomatic infection is and the other reason is that treating mycoplasma genitalium is very difficult. It is resistant to multiple antibiotics um, and I would suggest that if you're interested in mycoplasma genitalium or you have a patient who you think needs testing it would be a good idea to ring and speak to your local sexual health physician to get some advice before going ahead with that. So Nikki, when do we offer a sexual health check and what does a sexual health check look like nowadays? So a sexual health nowadays check nowadays is very much easier than it used to be. There are lots of situations in which it's important to offer sexually transmitted infection screening. Certainly in young people under the age of 30, we offer screening whether they're symptomatic or not if they're sexually active. And that's because this is the age group which is likely to have has the most likelihood of having a sexually transmitted infection. So in your young patients, I would suggest routine offer of testing. 
It's very easy to do testing. If the person's asymptomatic, they can take their own test. If they're symptomatic, clearly you have to do an examination. We obviously always offer testing to people who have sexual contacts with somebody with an STI, people who've had a recent change of sexual partner or who are having multiple sexual partners, uh, people who are sexually active with different partners who are having contraceptive or a smear test. Uh, we definitely suggest sexually transmitted infection testing in the antenatal setting. And with the advent of the syphilis outbreak, we're also now recommending syphilis serology not only at the first booking visit, but also at the 28-week visit because we do know that a couple of the congenital cases were missed uh, because of infection later in pregnancy. So we think this is important. We offer STI testing as well, uh, pre-termination of pregnancy or IUCD insertion. If the person has symptoms, if they've had non-consenting sexual encounters, and obviously also in patients who request that you do one for them. The sexual health check for women, um, let's talk about asymptomatic women first because that's uh, the easier situation. If, uh, if they don't have any genital symptoms, it's very easy. You can give them a swab and they can go and take it themselves because the vulvovaginal swab is the most sensitive swab in terms of testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea. In different parts of the country, uh, there will be different situations with regards to trichomonas. Certainly in Auckland, if you want trichomonas testing, you need to ask for it and you need to have a clinical reason for it. And that would normally be vaginal discharge or particular sexual risk. If your patient is symptomatic, so if they've got skin symptoms, pelvic pain, other kinds of genital symptoms, then you're going to do a full examination. And the first thing uh, that we suggest is examining the vulval and perianal skin and the inguinal lymph nodes. The next step is to do the vulvovaginal swab where you insert your nucleic acid amplification swab into the vagina. And then on withdrawal or on insertion, you make sure that you pass around the introitus and the periurethral skin and some perineal skin. Uh, that gives you maximum coverage so that you're going to get the, the most out of your test. You're then going to do a speculum examination to look at the vagina and the cervix and do any additional testing that you're going to do. For example, a high vaginal swab for candida or BV if they've got abnormal discharge. I should mention here about testing for gonorrhea. Testing for gonorrhea is usually by nucleic acid amplification testing, uh, which we've just discussed. If the person is a contact of gonorrhea or if you think they've clinically got gonorrhea, we would ask that if you remember, you do a trans swab test from the cervix in women because we currently still need culture data to inform um, future testing and treatment of gonorrhea on the basis of susceptibility to antibiotics. I didn't talk about this before, but there are some ongoing issues in the arena of gonorrhea treatment. And at the moment, we're still using keftriaxone, uh, 500 milligrams, but this may uh, change in the future as the organism becomes slowly resistant to keftriaxone worldwide. There have been certainly some reports of multidrug resistant gonorrhea, not in New Zealand. The nearest is in Australia, but certainly in the UK, there've been some cases coming through, and this is probably arising in the Asian region. So at the moment, there's no change to practice, but we do want cultures when we can get them so that we can keep an eye epidemiologically on the susceptibility. In addition to your swabs, you're also going to do serology for HIV and syphilis, 
We only test for hepatitis C if the person has risk factors. So if they're an injecting drug user or if they've got a partner who's hep C positive, who's not been treated. Uh, and we only test for hepatitis B if the person is not likely to have been vaccinated, if they know they haven't been vaccinated, or if they come from a, a high-risk group, for example, Pacific Island, Maori, uh, and some other ethnic groups from outside New Zealand, we would also offer testing in that circumstance. In terms of STI testing for men, again, asymptomatic or opportunistic testing is very easy. If the person has no symptoms and there's no particular risk, then you're going to send them off to the loo um, to do a first void urine, which is the first 15 to 30 mils of urine, and that will be tested for chlamydia and gonorrhea. If they're a man who has sex with men, you're going to need to do additional testing. So if your patient is a man who has sex with men, I think it's important to offer testing from all sites, regardless of what sexual history you've taken or not. You may not have the time, or you may feel uncomfortable about asking them about all their sexual practices, that's okay, but they should all have a pharyngeal swab, an anal swab, and a first void urine. And they will all be tested for chlamydia and gonorrhea. In terms of serology, again, HIV and syphilis, hep C only if risk factors, hep B only if they're likely to have not been vaccinated. In terms of symptomatic men, obviously if they've got symptoms, you're gonna do a full genital examination. And if they've got purulent urethral discharge, and you think they've got gonorrhea, you're going to take a transwab culture as well as your first four urine. And in men who have sex with men, if they've got anorectal symptoms, you will need to have a look. Um, if it seems like they've got proctitis, so that's anal discharge, bleeding, pain, with defecation, you may do that yourself, or you may feel uncomfortable about that and wish to refer to the sexual health service for that, which is fine. Nikki, you've mentioned HIV and syphilis. What are the latest recommendations from sexual health physicians? Well, sexual health physicians love testing for HIV and syphilis, obviously. And we recommend that everybody who's having a sexual health check has serology for HIV and syphilis, uh, even if they appear to be very low risk. And the reason for this is that relying on risk-based screening means that you miss infections uh, for both syphilis and HIV. And... I've certainly seen, you know, patients who've not been tested, who've eventually decided that they need testing themselves and arranged it, and they've actually had, for example, syphilis. So certainly from the perspective of HIV, the Ministry of Health's approach is to normalise testing, and that's what we recommend. It doesn't require, I mean, in the old, old days, there was all this stuff about pre-test and post-test counselling, etc., which all seemed a little bit too difficult. But nowadays, we basically don't worry about that. We say this is what we do for a routine sexual health screen. Would you like to do it? These are the tests. The patient has to know, obviously, what they're being tested for and how they're going to get their results. Uh, and then you just do it. And um, the only time I do more lengthy pre-test counselling is if I've discussed the person's sexual history with them and there's a significant risk there that they might have HIV infection. Then I'm going to talk to them about the test, about how they might cope with the result, about how we're going to give it. Um, etc. But for the majority of people, you really that's that's not super important as long as you as long as you tell them what you're doing. Talking HIV now, pre-exposure prophylaxis is available in New Zealand. Who should we be offering this? Okay, so prep is uh, at the moment in New Zealand. Prep is Truvada, 
um, but this will be going generic. And the medications in Truvada are tenofovir 300 milligrams and emtricitabine 200 milligrams. These drugs are drugs that we use to treat HIV infection, but they are used extensively overseas and there's been a massive amount of study data indicating that they work very, very well as a preventative medication against infection with HIV. So that's effectively what PrEP is. It works best for those at the highest risk. Okay, so we, the people it works best for are men who have sex with men who are having regular unprotected anal sex where they are the recipient. Okay, because that's the, technically, that is the highest risk sexual behavior. So if you look on the Pharmac website, you will see criteria for funded PrEP, and I'm not going to read it out here, but effectively the person has to be um, male or transgender, they have to be having sex with men, they have to be having condomless anal sex, and the other risks are rectal chlamydia or gonorrhea, obviously, as a diagnosis, infectious syphilis, and meth use or if they've got a partner who's HIV positive who's not on treatment, which is actually really, really uncommon now, but obviously in that situation they would be at risk of infection. So currently the situation is that the first prescription and endorsement for PrEP has to come from a specialist. And the specialists who are, who are providing endorsement in New Zealand are largely sexual health physicians. So, for example, in the Auckland region, if you're a GP and you've got a patient who wants PrEP and you want to give it, then you send us a e-referral with all the relevant information, including all the baseline testing, and then we will email you, send you a message back to say this all looks fine, you can go ahead. Or if you don't want to do it yourself, you can refer them in to our service and we'll do it. We do take PrEP pretty seriously in terms of a drug because obviously it is an HIV drug that we use to treat people who are infected. It does have potential side effects, particularly the issue about uh, renal function with tenofovir. So we certainly, the baseline investigations, obviously the patient has to be HIV negative and the Pharmac criteria state they have to have had a negative test within two weeks of you starting their PrEP. Because we obviously don't want people who are infected starting to take two drugs for their HIV infection instead of three drugs. Mm because that's not going to work well. So we do baseline serology, we do baseline STI testing, we do baseline renal function, hepatitis screening, liver tests. Provided all that's good, um, we go ahead and we uh, provide them with Truvada. After the first prescription and endorsement, they need a new number. Um, it was supposed to be every three months, but I noticed that after I've prescribed one course for patients that's coming back with a six-month chem number from Pharmac. So obviously they've got sick of people asking for a new number every three months. So basically once the specialist has helped you with the first one, you as a GP can then go on and um, get another number after that. Uh, and the patients can basically continue it as long as they feel that it's necessary. Obviously we're still recommending they use condoms, but in general, they're not, which is obviously why we've put them on PrEP in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see them every three months uh, and we insist on doing routine STI screening basically every three months because they are at high risk of infection and we're going to pick up infections that way. The other things I guess to know about PrEP uh, and if you want to prescribe PrEP as a GP, there's quite a bit of information about it. I believe there's some 
um, webinars and podcasts for the Goodfellow Unit. There's also a module on the Australasian Sexual Health and HIV organisation, which is ASHM, A-S-H-M, dot org dot au. There's, a, there's actually a module you can do on there about PrEP prescribing. The other thing I would say about PrEP is that uh, it's important to advise people that actually not, it's a bit like the pill, they're not covered for seven days. They've got to have had seven days of Truvada on board before they consider can consider that they're actually protected. And the tail off period if they want to stop is also a bit contentious. But at this point in time, we recommend that if they decide they want to stop, they continue for 28 days after their last risk event to ensure that they don't have incubating HIV, which escapes. What about post-exposure prophylaxis, Nikki? Who do we offer this to? How do we offer it? And when do we offer it? Okay, so post-exposure prophylaxis is uh, what you do if you've not on PrEP and you've had a risk episode uh, and you want to prevent yourself from getting HIV infection. Hopefully we'll need to do this less often now that PrEP is out there and funded because it does involve a bit of time pressure. If the person's had an exposure, they need to actually start the drugs within 72 hours of the exposure, otherwise it doesn't work and it's pointless to do it. You can't prescribe it as a general practitioner. You, if somebody presents to you, you're going to have to refer them. And it all depends on timing where they can go. So, for example, if it's in hours, uh, we will usually be able to see them urgently. Uh, if it's out of hours, they're going to have to go to the emergency department, basically. And in the emergency department, they have little supplies of PEP to get people started. And then they can have a prescription, which they then fill. Again, it's an issue with funding. At the moment, um, PEP is only funded if the person's had unprotected receptive anal sex with somebody who has HIV or they've had um, unconsenting sex and the clinician considers that PEP's appropriate or they've shared injecting equipment with a known HIV positive person. So that's quite limited and if they don't fit those criteria they can still have PEP but it's not funded and they have to pay for it. And what sort of price are we talking? Well, we don't use the same drugs. We're going to use different drugs if they're paying for it themselves. They're going to probably use Combivir, which is an old-fashioned HIV drug um, that's still around, and it's in its generic form. And uh, basically, you can get that for about $80 to $85 for a month, which is actually quite cheap because the PEP course is for a month. The difficulty with that is that they, uh, the side effects are a little bit more troublesome often on that drug. A lot of people who start PEP never finish it anyway. So um, it's important to allow people to, to help them make that decision about starting. And even if they start and they take three or four days and, and decide no, that's okay. Um, but a, a lot of people do not complete their full month. And if they do complete their full month, then we have a protocol whereby we test them again at four to six weeks and then we test them finally at three months after they've had their PEP. So if they don't fit the funding criteria, they can get it prescribed um, and you'd probably want to ask for advice about that in general practice. I know that the funding criteria are under review, which I think is a good thing because actually these criteria were devised a few years ago and Basically, most people who, who know that they're HIV positive are on treatment. And if they're on treatment, they're highly likely to be undetectable. And if they're undetectable, they're not infectious, which is the whole new U equals U campaign, which has been going on for some time now. 
um, that uh, basically there's a lot of international data, a vast amount to indicate that people who are consistently virally undetectable on their blood tests, you, you do not get sexual transmission of HIV. So effectively having unprotected sex with an HIV positive person is not necessarily a risk. Um, and in New Zealand, we're lucky in that most people who know their status are on treatment. So the new criteria are gonna to have to broaden that a little bit because actually it's the people who are having unprotected sex who, with someone who doesn't know their status who are probably at more risk and need PEP. And as I said, hopefully we're going to need PEP less and less now that uh, we have PrEP available. Now, Nikki, there's a new notification system for sexually transmitted infections in New Zealand. Can you tell us about this? I can tell you something about this. It's not actually 100% fully up and running yet. But yes, there is a new notification system and the idea is to give us more robust data about sexually transmitted infections. For example, uh, we, there will be data collected on syphilis uh, serology, positive syphilis serology. At the moment, I can tell you the status is that infectious syphilis cases are currently only being notified by sexual health clinics or family planning clinics. With respect to gonorrhea, if you get a positive result for gonorrhea, you should get a notification on the lab form that this is a notifiable disease. At the moment, as the person who's done the test, you have to go to the ESR site and um, fill out a form and they send you a link and then you have to fill out another form to notify the case. So at the moment it's a little bit clunky, mm. but we hope that this is going to get smoother with time. In terms of HIV, the AIDS Epidemiology Group liaises with ESR about this and clinicians who have a new patient will be sent a link that they can click on, which takes them through to a reporting form for ESR. In terms of the other infections, nothing has, is really changing at this stage. And to conclude our podcast today, Nikki, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Okay, so basically, sexually transmitted infections are common. And it's important to routinely offer testing to people who are under the age of 30 and others based on, the, based on their risk assessment. Do not skip on the serology. We know there's a syphilis outbreak. We need to be case finding. And with HIV, of course, it's important to normalise um, testing because we can't rely on risk-based testing. Consent is verbal, so don't get worried about pre- and post-test counselling. Don't let that discourage you from doing the testing but the patients do need to know what they've been tested for and how they're going to get their results. Be aware of PrEP, do a little bit of reading or maybe do the module, look at the webinar, listen to the podcast so that you're aware of what to do because undoubtedly somebody's going to come and ask you for it. And the last thing I guess is to be aware of this new notification system and that it's going to involve a bit of form filling. Thank you, Nikki. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. There will also be a list of the resources mentioned on this podcast on our website. Thank you for listening.